Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as I recover from COVID here in the mountains of Utah. A quick reminder that as of release of this episode, we are just a few weeks away from the launch of my new epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning. I'm sorry, not sorry, that I keep harping on it, but get those pre-orders in. I am thankful, and I love you all. Now on with the show. My guest this week is YouTuber Tim Hickson. Tim is the owner, writer, and performer of the wildly popular Hello Future Me channel, where he breaks down plot, characters, and world building. He's also the author of two books on the subject, On Writing and World Building, Volumes 1 and 2. Tim and I talk about the pressures of success, Tim's journey towards publishing his own fiction stories, the difficulty of pleasing yourself, fans, and algorithms all at once, and the cold hard reality of using art to pay your bills. Enjoy my conversation with Tim Hickson. Well, so are you a Tim or a Timothy? I'm I'm a Tim. Uh, if you if you would like to be firm with me, feel free to say uh, Timothy. Uh, if you would, if if that's if that's more comfortable, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, otherwise, I I am just Tim. <laughs> Yeah, I was always, uh, when when my parents were mad at me, I was always Brian Thomas. Oh, yeah, yeah, Brian Thomas, yeah, Timothy Matthew. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they bust out that middle name, you know you are screwed. Absolutely, I'm getting grounded, sent to my room, till I realized I could read books, and then that's that's fine. <laughs> right, you know, it's, I, I think, I think a lot of parents are really happy when they're teenagers, like, just disappear quietly mm-hmm. and maybe the worst thing they do is uh rack up library fines yeah 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 i discovered when i was about eight no sorry i read the hobbit when i was about seven and then from there on my love of fantasy grew and i very quickly retreated into my room by nature and so they had to find new punishments for me right yeah i was one of those kids that like you know go to your room didn't work on me right like just because oh my room's where i wanted to be in the first place this is a great place yeah i had i had a bunk bed and i had two couches that were facing like two single couches facing each other under my bunk bed and that was like a little little reading hammock for me where i could read uh aragon 13 times when i was 11 (laughs) oh man that sounds so fantastic I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I re- I wish I had a bit more variety, but um, yeah, <laughs> the, the the setting was lovely. Yeah, yeah. I had whatever whatever the library kind of had in stock. You know, my my parents never took me to bookstores. We didn't really have a ton near us, hmm. but uh, but my mom volunteered at the library every week, so I was always there, always coming out with a big old stack of something. And, man, I just 
But I love those. Something that I, I've never been able to replicate as an adult is that feeling of of reading so much and for so long that like you're like various limbs go numb and you have to like find new positions, but you never put down the book the entire time. You're just rolling around your bedroom trying to be comfortable. I know. I totally agree with that. I remember, you know, like I'd be like reading upside down, you know, hanging over the edge. Yeah. And like as an adult, maybe I just don't have like that, that ability to be as fixed. Like it's almost like, you know, the book itself is the axis around your, which your body turns, you know, um, but now your, your body turns around the pains in your spine. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Now, I was kind of curious about something. Um, as somebody who has, uh, from what I can tell, pretty made a, a quite a good career out of uh, doing reviews and talking about the, um, the minutia of storytelling and world building and character and stuff like that, have you found that your personal enjoyment of things has gone down over the last over over the Ooh. course of your career. Um okay, so it's 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 a yes and a no answer to that. Um that what it has done is changed my tastes. What it does, I mean, in 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 the way that um the more you delve into any given thing, the more extreme your tastes kind of become in some sense, the more you're looking for that sort of bigger challenge, bigger hurdle. Um I have definitely found that the more I have kind of studied sci-fi and fantasy and I have always loved doing that. Like since I was a kid, I'd sit down and I would, I would, I would read a book and I'd be like, why did I love this book? Like what, what made this book resonate with me? And I would try and figure that out. Uh, and so this is really an extension of that, but the more I've done that in a professional context, the more I found that I prefer really experimental books. Uh, I, I tend to find that, um, I, I don't want to use the term conventional, but perhaps familiar, um, f- the stuff that has the, you know, the, the hero and the villain and the, uh, and, 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 and a lot of those, those familiar tropes that we're very, that we know a lot, that we see a lot. I, I don't get as much out of those as, as I perhaps used to. And so my, I've, I've turned to love, you know, like Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation was just, I, I adored that. That was so different to anything I'd really read because it's, it was it was intensely literary while also being really complex science fiction. And uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky's *Children of Time* is another favorite of mine. De- uh, deeply, de- very very different. Um, so yeah, my my tastes have definitely deepened. I, I not deepened, just just become more complicated, but Sh- shifted maybe. Shifted, yeah. But I mean, you are on the other end of this. Like you're writing this stuff. I mean, you are. It's this, it's that weird thing where, you know, you're writing it and you're also reading it. So how does, how has that affected you? Uh, honestly, I, I don't read much anymore, uh, no. which is like a, it, it's, it's almost like the tragedy of my pretty successful career mm-hmm. is that I took something that I really loved as a kid. I mean, I, I read voraciously until probably I was around 24, 26 ish, right around when my career started. Um, I just read voraciously. I would get anything. I would I would devour books in 24 hours, you know, the big honker epic fantasies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then as soon as I started doing it for a living, I just like the the urge to read kind of disappeared. And my I, I found I always found myself analyzing stuff and mm-hmm. analyzing it in a way that wasn't fun for me. And, and I've been trying, I, part of this podcast is because I, I asked this similar question to a lot of my guests. And 
And part of this has been me trying to figure out how to come back around to really loving things a lot more and and kind of shedding my uh my writer brain when I'm when I'm watching something, when I'm reading something, all that stuff. Um but that it's hard. I know a lot of read a lot of writers still read voraciously and I'm very jealous of those people. But I've also come across quite a few who just kind of, you know, as soon as they kind of got their career going, they just kind of tapered off and they just don't really read that much anymore. Yeah, I I've 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 encountered that with with some people. It's I mean, it's it's got to be heartbreaking in, in in a way. It feels like losing a part of yourself in some way, even though you've found you know this incredible successful writer career with one of the big you know fantasy series out there at the moment. You know, Powder Mage and all that. Yeah, it's, it's quite incredible. I'm 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 really impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's it is. It's a weird little kind of double edged sword thing, and I I find myself. I found myself lately, I've been really trying hard to enjoy things more for what they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this isn't a book, but like my best example is, um, uh, did you watch The Mandalorian when it came out? I, I, it's actually the only one of those kind of new Disney, Star Wars, Marvel series. I've watched that and Loki um, because I, I'm just not really into those universes, but those yeah. are the only two that I watched and, and Mandalorian was really good. So the thing is, is that Mandalorian, I... I don't think it was good. And a, a lot of my writer friends, like on Twitter and stuff, it just exploded. Everybody was being critical and stuff about it. The thing is, is that I don't think it was good, but I really enjoyed it. I forced right. myself to sit down and watch it and just kind of enjoy the whole process. Enjoy, like, one of the things that my wife and I really enjoyed about it was talking about what the obvious influences were for every episode. You know, things like that. Like really getting into the kind of the, the joy behind the series rather than, you know, letting my writer brain be like picking apart. Okay. This didn't make sense. This is kind of stupid. This is all this stuff. And, um, and I found a couple of those new star Wars things. Um, book of Bo- book of Boba Fett was particularly egregious in terms of, I've heard that was not that great. Yeah. Right. In terms of like, you know, these things don't make sense. This is kind of a weird way to go with it. But again, I just kind of made myself sit back and just kind of enjoy, enjoy just kind of, you know, being a kid again, you know, and saying, holy crap, there's Star Wars on TV. This wasn't a thing, you know, 10 years ago. This is kind of cool. I, I very much have that with um, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, which it's it, in, in some ways, you know, stories aren't necessarily enjoyable because they're really well written or profound, which is something that I know the elitist part of me looks for. And, uh, but like Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, it's just so fun. It's so, it's so, uh, bombastic and it's, it's, is that the third one? That's the third one. Sorry. Yeah. So that's right. Okay. That's the third one, which, you know, first one was, was well known. Second one was pretty well received. Third one was, a lot of fun, but technically not that great. <laughs> right. Like there's the scene with Barbosa marrying them during yes. the sword. Yeah. Fight. Yeah. I'm a little busy at the moment. <laughs> right. It's so incredibly stupid, but it also is so fun. Yeah. Like there's that balance you kind of have to make. And I, I feel like in the recent years in my career, and this is what I'm trying to counter uh, now is I find in recent years that I, I take myself and, and writing so seriously that I'll, I'll, that I kind of take things like that and just dismiss them and be like, oh, that was dumb. It's, you know, 
and I'm I'm really trying to dig more into kind of okay. There's some things that maybe there are they're really stupid from a storytelling point of view. Yeah, but they're still awesome, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. I I get with that feeling though. You're talking about kind of comes from in the sense that like my career is is at the moment it's very based around how much media I can consume and analyze, and because of that, um, I have to look for stuff that I feel I can draw on a lot of the time. And it does in a way a lot that that sort of desire to find those things comes from that fear of like this thing, this kernel of amazingness that you've got at the moment, the fear of it all just falling apart and you need to make sure that it's there uh, and that it stays there. And you've got to keep putting in good material instead of just enjoying things. I don't know if that's a, f- a familiar experience for you, but that is, it's part of it for me is that I, I need to, I, I need, I'm focused on the career rather than necessarily enjoying the actual stuff I'm watching and reading. I, I definitely suffer from that. I, uh, you know, I, when you talk about creativity and things like that, um, you know, so many authors have these like deep wells that they can reach into of like, of, uh, oh, my passion comes from X, Y, and Z. And, and man, it's sometimes I'm like, oh, my passion comes from really not wanting to ever have to work a nine to five crappy job. Again. <laughs> oh man, I have, I've, I have never worked a nine to five job. So you climbed out of the void, out of the depths. I'm like trying to run away from the edges in the first place, you know, cause I, I fell into this at university. And so yeah, I'm. I'm like, I'm. If I ever had to work in an office with other people instead of on my own, I would just be inept. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I feel like you know, because I'm. I think I'm closing in on. Um, I've been full time as an author for a bit over ten years, and and next year will be ten years from the start of my the launch of my first book. Hmm. So you know, a decade of a career. And I look back and go, man, I I don't even know how I would function in a normal job any kind of normal job, whether it's an office job or flipping burgers or anything like I couldn't function in any of that. That's, 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 that's crazy. And like the arc of your career. So that first year where like you became professional, where are you now compared to then? Like personally in your work, like how you think of yourself in your work. It's, it's weird to look back on it. Cause I, I tend to look back on like cold, hard facts kind of thing. Like I'll be like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm making X amount of money more, you know, that kind of stuff. But like from like a psychological perspective, I, I think I'm a little more secure, you know, like in that in terms of I don't feel as panicked about, OK, is this is my first book going to flop? You know, is my second book going to flop? Is my third book going to flop? You know, like there's always that thing going, you know, even New York Times bestsellers will tell you the same thing. They'll say, yeah, I there's always that little thing in the back of my head saying, you know, asking whether I'm going to fail at some point. And that's still there, mm-hmm. but I think it's definitely le- less than it used to be. Um, you know, I have a lot more confidence in, okay, if I do have a book flop, I can probably make up somewhere. I'll, I'll start a new series or I'll self-publish something. I'll, you know, jump to a different contract. You know, I can, I, I have the skill set and kind of... You've got enough credibility built up that you could be flexible. Right. Yeah. Right. I could I could probably recover if something disastrous happened. Yeah. But uh, yeah, early in my career, I did not feel that way. It was very much <laughs> a, like just, you know, like, you know, swimming for all I, I was worth to try to, 
you know, hope that I hope that Ed, like, you know, that extra tweet going out would maybe get me a few more people that would read the book, you know, all that uh, kind of thing. Yeah. It's, you're so focused on those like little numbers at the start. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, and it feels like it's all about to fall apart. Cause you did a lot of the time you don't feel like you've necessarily earned it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of something that has happened to you and you are trying to take advantage of, but in the same way that it. At least, I mean, I don't know if this how you felt, but for me, it was kind of like this thing has happened to me, and I'm, I, I, I am trying to take advantage of it, and as easily as it came to me, it could be taken away, and that the, there's there's that there's that lack of control in many senses that's kind of terrifying when you're self-employed. <laughs> oh yeah, and I, I no, I totally get that, and I think that's a very big thing for any creative professional at all. Because, you know, we don't get performance reviews. You know, we don't get a 5% raise because <laughs> we, we just get really paid well. less. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, we have no idea. And, and the fact is, is that for a lot of us, you know, our, our income can vary wildly from month to month or quarter to quarter mm. and definitely from year to year. <laughs> like these things, they go up and down so much and, and you, you can kind of try to keep your finger on it and like kind of understand, okay, you know, my, I know that my sales on my backlist dipped a little bit last year. I can probably expect to make a bit less you know, you, you kind of have a general understanding, but honestly, you know, you could go, you could suddenly get a, you know, as an author, you could suddenly get a foreign rights offer that, you know, for 30 grand that suddenly, oh, that that's a big boost. Yeah. Or you go for two years without a single foreign rights offer or something like that. And you're like, oh, that, that little bit of extra income I was hoping for <laughs> is not happening. I, I've recently had like uh, a, a South Korean uh, publisher reach out and get the foreign rights to a couple of books that I, I did. And I was just like, it was completely out of the book. I had no idea. And then, and then they offered me this amount of money, you know, like $3,000 US. And I was just like, why not? I suppose. Um, uh, but I mean, I don't expect that to happen uh, with anyone else, but um, yeah, no, that's, it's, it, it does, it does fluctuate a lot and it's a very weird space to live in a lot of the time, the uncertainty. Well, and for, for guys like you who do, I, I, I kind of, I'm making the assumption that most of your income comes from YouTube. It's, I mean, everything comes from YouTube in an indirect sense. Um, mm-hmm. But the actual income streams that I have, I have about seven different income streams, um, which vary between uh, ad revenue, sponsorship, Patreon, book sales, uh, and freelance work and a couple of other small things. But yeah, the majority of it, it's all indirectly tied to YouTube. Yeah. No. And is that a, is that a monthly payout then? Or is that quarterly? Well, they're, they're, they're all different. So the YouTube payouts come out on the 20th of each month. Mm-hmm. Um, book sales come through every three months, which I'm sure you know, as well as I do. Um, yeah. Uh, then Patreon is on the first of each month and then freelance is off an hourly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's, it's all coming in different spots. <laughs> very like it's, it's just unexpected and you can get an idea. Like, you know, exactly when you get paid every month for those monthly things. Right. Yes. And, yes. You know, everybody has kind of those, um, you know, for, for me, I've get, you know, my royalty checks are twice a year in April and October. And I oh my gosh, twice a that. year? Yeah. Twice a year? Yeah. That's hot. Oh my gosh. What like how do you <laughs> how do you navigate that? Like that's <laughs> uh carefully. Carefully. <laughs> uh, the first 
probably four years of my career, uh, like those two or three months before the uh, before a royalty check dropped, I was definitely like I was rolling over credit card debt. You know, because normally I'm one of those people that pays off my credit cards every single month. You know, never carry oh my a balance. Gosh. But those first four years or so, I was you know carrying balances on my credit card just to try to be like, okay, I know I'm going to get paid in a couple of months. You know, like, <laughs> like. But honestly, and that's why I started doing a lot of self publishing with like little novellas and things like that. Is because I was like, man, I need something that's just bringing me in one or two thousand dollars a month just for consistency. Yeah, and yeah. So, you know, that kind of thing you kind of have to fiddle with and make it work for your career and for your home life and all that stuff. Absolutely. I, it's, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm in a weird position, you know, I'm in, I'm in one of those weird positions where I have an audience that I could self-publish to and it would do well. Like I have an audience that I could, I, I have self-published two books, um, you know, textbooks type things and they have yeah, done- Yeah, your world building books, right? Yeah. And they have yeah. done, they did- um, like leaps and bounds beyond what I thought. I thought I would sell, I I budgeted to sell 500 copies and they've sold like 50,000. So that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing was, is that it went way, I did not for a second anticipate it would go beyond my niche audience. And then I learned that it did. And that had its own negative consequences, but I can't get into that now. (laughs) What I was going to say is like, I, I I really want to like traditionally publish like this fiction book. Uh, but yeah, like the, the, the choice of whether or not to self-publish or traditionally publish when you've got an audience, it's, it's, it's a complicated one, especially cause it's a lot to do with credibility. Um, you know, regardless of how the self-publishing industry is changing, uh, people look at traditional publishing as, as with its gatekeeping in some ways as a way of finding credibility. And I know that there are books published, which are not that good. Don't get me wrong, but that's still an element to it there. And yeah, that that's 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 a difficult one to. There's the temptation to self-publish, but I have to avoid that for this particular project for me personally. Well, and I imagine that's something that you just kind of you have to struggle with that, right? You have to mm. kind of you have to look at your options and you have to say, okay, what's good for me as a career? What's good for me as a public-facing person? What's good for me personally? Like, mm. there's so many things you have to juggle with that kind of decision. Yeah, I. I've always viewed right from the start. I always viewed this YouTube stuff as a platform to eventually become an author. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the way I look at it is kind of like, I, I feel like being traditionally published is going to give me more longevity theoretically in the future, at least at the moment. And I don't know how accurate that is. It's so hard to predict this sort of thing, but it's, it's getting your, your it's getting your hands and roots into a business fundamentally mm-hmm. into an industry um, that self-publishing wouldn't quite let me do yet. It would still be sort of existing in my own little bubble. Yeah. So, so, so but um, that is a, that is a dilemma that I've, 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 I've been many YouTubers encounter. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure that's, it's definitely a, um, I mean, even for, for established authors, that's something that goes through everybody's head of um, cause, cause there's, there's plenty of authors who are very straightforward of, I don't want to deal with, my, I don't want to deal with all the back end stuff. Yeah. I want to hand a book to someone, have them publish it, period. That's it. But, you know, we've kind of reached that point in kind of the way self publishing works and the industries all work and everything like that, where it's very, really quite, maybe not easy, viable, but it's viable, right? It's yeah. Quite viable for. I mean, you published, I mean, how many, how many novellas have you published, self published? 
I think I've, I think I've got maybe six novellas and a short story collection or five novellas and a short story collection. Nice. And, and that's, and, and honestly, it wasn't all that much work for me. And I enjoy doing little fiddly bits like that occasionally. Mm. So, so I, it, I was in a good position to do it. And, and to be frank, they've made me pretty good money. Yeah. But I, I still make 80% of my income from traditional publishing. Right. So it's, you know, like these things are all, you know, every author will say, okay, yeah, that's a thing when I'm looking at a new book that I've got and I'm ready to send it out to publishers, I stop and think, should I self-publish it? Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. Has there been any projects that you've done that like publishers are like, uh, I don't know if I can, if we, if we should really put this out. And so you decide to put it out as a self-published novel. Honestly, um, this one right here, actually uncanny collateral is my uh, little urban fantasy series. I've only got two out so far. And then I, I, I stopped cause I had to switch and write the new epic fantasy. <laughs> um, but so this little urban fantasy series, I, I wrote this book and it was like 45,000 words and I showed it to my agent and she said, this is really fun. I really enjoy it. Um, and she took it out to publishers. And publishers basically all came back and said, look, 45,000 words, that's like barely a book for science fiction and fantasy. Mm. We're not really interested in something that short. Yeah, it's really that that gray area between novella and novel. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the, everybody kind of shot me down. I had a couple of people come back and say, oh, make it 40,000 words longer and we'll definitely take a stronger look. <laughs> Just double the word count. What? <laughs> right. Right. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Like this was just a fun side project for me. This is, you know, I write epic fantasy for a living at the moment. Mm. So, so yeah, so I ended up just self-publishing it and my, uh, my agent was really cool with it. And she kind of, you know, gave me pointers and, and said, yeah, here, let's, uh, if nobody else wants it, then do it yourself and make some money. And, and I did, and mm. it worked out great, but, but yeah, it's, it's that kind of, but there's there's great things about self-publishing. There's great things about traditional publishing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's why I've kind of straddled. I want to do kind of both of them in some way. Um, I definitely wanted that experience with self-publishing. And theoretically, in the future, I might self-publish some other, some other novels. Uh, but I've also been like writing short stories and submitting those to magazines. I just want to get kind of the breadth of publishing experience that I can to, to see where I really want to end up. So going back to, to what you were saying about like trying to recover the joy of reading and stuff like that. One thing that I have found that personally helps is that I read things that are entirely different to what I'm writing. Mm -hmm. So I find that it's, it's, I've been, I have been trying over the last few years to read as much. uh, So I didn't really write short stories. I wrote I, I, I wrote only kind of like novel type stuff. And then, so I decided, okay, I'm going to read short stories. And then I decided I'm, I, I, I'm going to read, uh, <clears throat> you know, horror and, and, 
biography type stuff and uh, a lot more literary so at the moment i'm reading dostoevsky uh, which is <laughs> like very much not what i not what i write and i guess i guess for me personally in terms of enjoyment it's kind of like i don't necessarily need to analyze it nearly as much or uh compare it to what i'm doing at the moment because it's a different playground yeah because I can see how it happens with epic fantasy. You know, you're writing epic fantasy, reading epic fantasy. I don't know how much you've read of like Sanderson or anything like that, but quite a bit. Yeah, well, you were in his class, weren't you? I was. I, I live right up the street from him. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Are you guys like tight? I I mean, I'm not going to claim that we're tight, but no, no, no. <laughs> Brandon is. I consider Brandon a friend, and yeah. he's he's been very cool to me for my entire career. He's been very cool to everyone. My goodness, he's such a good guy. <laughs> he really is. Uh, Bra- no, Brandon's lovely. Um, I I mentioned this on a one an episode I recorded recently, but one of the amazing things about living near him was that in the middle of the pandemic, um, when my wife and I were very uncomfortable going anywhere, <coughs> I got to go watch Dune in his personal theater. And that was like one of those moments that I was like, this is the coolest thing I have ever experienced. You got to watch Dune in his personal theater. Oh, yeah. my, how do you even get the rights to put a personal Dune showing in your own theater? I mean, it was just on HBO Max. So he just oh, right. played it on the theater. We we don't have all of your fancy schmancy uh fancy schmancy like uh streaming services here in new zealand we're still stuck in 2005 so <laughs> oh that that is deeply unfortunate <laughs> oh no that that's 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 really cool um but like i mean what what else what other things might you be interested in reading kind of like outside epic fantasy or sci-fi honestly for me uh, I do a lot of listening. I like to, I play a lot of video games. And so oftentimes if I'm playing a solo video game that doesn't require a lot of brain space, I'll put on podcasts. And for me, it's uh, for historical stuff. I love historical uh, books, podcasts, anything that is like real life, but interesting. Mm. And with lots of fiddly political intrigue and wars and big battles and all the sorts of stuff. Um, I, I just, I eat that stuff up. And honestly, it's great because it's not exactly what I do for a living, but it feeds me both kind of my personal interests and my creativity because it'll be like, oh. Because you have your own politicking and politics and wars inside your own world. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that kind of stuff, like like right now I've been, I, I, I left off, um, there's a, a podcast called the Revolutions Podcast, which is absolutely amazing. And every season is a different revolution um, that they just cover in depth. And, uh, and I think it was around the time the pandemic started, I just stopped listening because I wasn't driving anywhere anymore. And, uh, and so I was about 20 episodes into the Russian revolution mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, I've been re-listening to those 20 episodes and now I'm finally moving forward to get the rest of it. And I like, I eat that stuff up. It's just so interesting. So cool to read about these, like these historical figures and kind of these, it's almost like character an- analysis of of real people and learn what drives them learn what mistakes they made and you know how things went badly how things went right you know all that stuff yeah no i i i i wish that i have i have i wish that i um could read and engage with more history stuff than i currently do i got sent 
Now, I'm not like, I don't know if you know who Dan Carlin is, but. Uh, yeah, I, I love Dan Carlin. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I had not heard of him, but someone sent me his um, Japanese, the Bomb in the East series. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. His, and his World War One series. Um, right. It was, um, is that one Ghosts of the Ost Front? Is that one? Uh, I don't remember. It's like, oh, it's, I'm he, trying he to remember one episode is- for each year or something of the war. I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember listening to that, and I really enjoyed those. Just, just for the, uh, just for the commentary, it's, it's, it's nice to get like a deep, slow look at a lot of this sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I find, I find that stuff fascinating. No, that's, that's, that is great. I, I love exactly that kind of thing. Like I said, it's that that mixture of being able to feed my feed my creativity, but also I'm really interested in what's going on. Mm. And so, you know, it's good for bike rides. It's good for when I'm playing video games, you know, etc. Uh, but that's kind of uh, almost kind of filled the niche that I used to that that used to be for me, you know, reading voraciously. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so with you kind of coming into this writing career, I'm curious. What is the coolest thing that you have stumbled across online to do with your work? Oh man. I mean, I think probably like, like, do you mean like reviews and things like that or, or just, I mean, I I mean, like you found a, you found a a particular review with a quote, you found fan art, you found discussions of a particular idea. That's like, you're like, oh my gosh, you're dead right on a thing that I wasn't meaning to reveal yet. You know? Yeah, no, I've definitely, I've done all of the above. I've, I've come across great reviews that always make me feel all nice. I've come across bad reviews that make me feel shitty for the rest of the day. (laughs) Oh man, Uh, bad reviews though. I, how do you take it? How do you, (laughs) man, with bad reviews, it's like, uh, I, I guess early in my career, I, I looked at every single review and I, they like the rule of thumb is to never look at reviews. Yeah. Yeah. But like I was, I was discussing recently with Brian Stavely on this podcast about this idea of like, where's the happy medium. And, you know, we were talking about the, this idea of reading a lot of reviews all at once so that you're not focusing on any single one. You're getting a general flavor of what people like and don't like. And I like that. That's a lovely idea, but I am a hyper, I will read 90, I will read a hundred reviews and, and like read the one that says, man, he's kind of bad. And I'll be like, oh, I'm a bad, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there's no, there's no real like, gosh, like I feel like you're probably bombarded with fee- audience feedback way more than I am even. Like, uh, because you, you have to engage on this on like a, like a monthly or weekly basis. Like for me, I'm like, oh, I've got a new book out once every year or two kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it, YouTube is very much like that. There's a constant stream of comments. When I first started, I read every single comment and I continued that for a long time. You'd waste hours reading every single comment. And then Twitter, you know, you're getting comments back on that. And people are very hypercritical. They assume so much about you from the smallest things right down to like who you follow on a particular thing on a, on, on, on Instagram, on Twitter, you know, they'll be like, well, you must agree with all this, that, or, you know, you must believe these things. Or if you say this thing, then it must mean that you believe all these other things, which are vaguely connected in this circle to whatever. And of course people, people love to extrapolate about that stuff. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't, I, it's, it's a weird world to navigate. I have since basically stopped looking at comments and reviews just because it's, 
it's so stressful. <laughs> that's that's probably healthy. I I think that yeah. I think that reviews can give you something that you can use for improving yourself. Mm-hmm. But I think that the there is a very high risk of it just totally torpedoing your self esteem. You know, like destroying your ability to get any work done. Uh, like it's just it's hard to engage with that kind of thing because you want to engage with your audience. Mm. I think a lot of people, that's their instinct is I want to, I want to talk to them. I want to find out what they like and don't like and all that stuff. And then, and then you do it and, and you feel awful. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's different than that. I think a lot of it is, is that sometimes, sometimes you'll get feedback and you'll, you'll be like, the feedback's correct. Absolutely. But you kind of already knew that that was kind of a thing you need to work on. And then getting hammered over and over with that, just told constantly, it's like, yes, yes, I know I'm working on it. That sort of thing. It, it can be, it can be quite demoralizing, you know, like if I've, if I've written a story or something like that and, and, and I'll be like, I'm pretty proud of the story. And um, the comments will be, you know, oh, this particular thing just didn't work. It was really badly paced. And I'm like, I know the story's not that well paced, but I like a lot of the other parts of it. I'm still working on my ability to pace things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. what. Have you ever found useful feedback from random reviews? Um, I, yeah, that's a tough question to answer. Like, <laughs> like I was mentioning, like I think, I think getting a vague idea mm-hmm. of what people are kind of maybe dissatisfied with uh, or, or like the biggest criticism that maybe you're, you, you can, uh, that you can scrape off of lots of different people's opinions. Mm. You know, that kind of thing is helpful for me in terms of shaping the direction I want to go as an author over the next five years kind of thing. Mm. But beyond that, it's not useful. You know, if somebody gives me a review and said, oh, this the, these characters were terrible. Oftentimes, the very next review will be, I loved all the characters. You know, so it's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's the, there's so so many contradictory opinions. It's hard to figure out what is like actual helpful critique and what is just people being passionately annoying. Yeah. So, so I mean, yes and no, it's, it's kind of hard to answer Mm. that. It's, uh, it's a weird place to be in. And, and I think maybe probably the healthiest thing is to not engage at all. Mm. Um, but, but every author, every, every creative kind of has to decide what level of you know, fan engagement, you know, learning from your audience, you want mm. to kind of deal with. Whose opinion do you trust then? Oh man. I mean, I don't know what your beta reading uh, system is like. I don't know if it's like, I mean, uh, I don't know if your wife reads your books and gives you feedback. My wife always reads my books. Um, yeah. I, I recently started a, uh, like last summer, I started a, uh, a dedicated beta reading group for my new series. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they really helped. And I think that the, I think my own opinion is what I trust the most at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been doing this enough that I have a pretty good gut instinct for whether something is working or not, mm-hmm. but beta readers are very useful for, if I have a gut instinct of whether something's working, beta readers can, if a bunch of them agree with me, yeah, then it confirms it. You're looking for trends. Yeah, often they'll they'll say, okay, I agree with, I think that this is wrong and this is the reason why. And it helps me diagnose what's going on, what I'm trying to you know, kind of sort out in my own head. And that's, that's really quite invaluable. I, I also find it's very often kind of a little bit opposite like that in the sense that a lot of beta readers will tell me, hey, I don't like this chapter. I don't like this part, but they'll all have different ideas about why. 
And I'm, and I usually seem to find that they're really good at figuring out when something is wrong, but not necessarily why it's wrong. Yeah. And, and that's again, that's something you trust. So you trust kind of these beta readers, your wife as, as like ways to find feedback. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, my agent and my editor, of course, oh, like they're, yeah. they're genuinely professionals. Yes. Yeah. You know, this is what they do for a living. And so, you know, that, but I always try to, because I know I'm one of only, you know, 30, 40 authors for them. Um, and so I, I try to always like give them the best that I can mm. rather than constantly bombarding them with, you know, like, oh, here's a new thing I'm worried about. Do you, how do I fix it? Kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so they're my last line of defense. No, no, ab- ab- absolutely. Have you ever, Oh, I mean, like, what's what's a what's a moment that you've not clashed, but like disagreed with creatively with your editor or agent? Oh man, I I almost always agree with them. To be honest, I uh, maybe they're just that brilliant. <laughs> I, I like I like to think that we're just we're, we're all geniuses. We're all geniuses, yeah. <laughs> and so we always agree, right? <laughs> no, I I always agree with them. I I think that sometimes. Um, sometimes it'll take me a couple of weeks to come around on something. Mm. Like if my, my editor comes back and says, oh, this is, I don't like this particular X thing. Usually I'll understand why immediately, but on the occasion that I don't, I'll go away and think about it for a couple of weeks and I'll usually come around to it. I I don't think I've pushed back more than a handful of times. And whenever I push back, my editor's really good about saying, okay, you're the writer. You do what you want. Mm. And, uh, and I don't think it's, it's none of it's been memorable enough for me to give an anecdote about. So no, 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 no. That's, that's, uh, that's fair. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you the only brain working behind your YouTube channel and your content? Almost. Um, so I write everything. I perform everything. Everything that is written on screen uh, that is on screen is is designed vaguely by me. I have an editor who edits my videos, and that's that's primarily because um, I needed time. I basically got to the point where I was like, I want to dedicate more time to my writing, and so I'm deciding to hire an editor, and I did, and. I sent him a script annotated with notes, have this stuff on screen, have this stuff on screen, have this scene at this point. And so I, I have a decent amount of input into the creative um, look of a video, but anytime that I do a bigger project, he, he tends to have a bit more 
a creative role in producing the video. But everything that is fundamentally written and created and all the ideas for scripts and stuff are me, yes. Do you like having that kind of level of responsibility? Or do you or or is there part of you that wishes there was somebody else in the mix? I'm I'm a control freak on that front. Um I have a friend who is bringing on a second writer to the channel. And I cannot fathom doing that. Uh, I can get rid of the editing because editing is not a passion of mine. It's not something I'm amazing at. It's sort of something I did through the nature of the job, but it's also not a way that I, it's not a thing I want to be known for, you know, whereas the writing is like, that's, that's the content. That's, that's the stuff I'm creating and putting out. So ultimately I, I, I don't have any people helping me research or anything like that. I do know people who have hired researchers uh, and they're helpful, but they're also more often for, uh, you know, like science channels and maths channels and and uh, history channels, where if you go and tell someone, you say, go and find me the causes of the Russian Revolution, there's a lot more concrete answers you can find for that. Um, a lot more like literal quotes, you know, but if I come, if I go tell a person, go and find me the best ways to create a character, that's just so much more vague and i i i i i don't feel like i can trust anyone but myself to navigate that navigate navigate that in a way that i that i feel confident to present that information yeah yeah i, I think that's how i feel about my writing uh mm. you kind of about my prose you know like this is this is me this is the core of who i am as a you know a, a career person as an artist a career artist mm. like the writing has to be mine and uh and i don't know like i i'm constantly thinking like okay i I'm, i've reached the point in my career where i need to i need to have like other people doing things for me like i need to have delegation here and there and and uh but i i constantly end up finding myself like like the idea of having an assistant who checked my emails for me honestly that would probably cut a few hours out of my week but holy crap like somebody else rooting through my email it sounds so incredibly weird to me yeah i i have missed a good i am i'm not very good with time management <laughs> my i the, the the rule of my life is that if i if i'm interested and passionate about doing something then i'm really good at it and if i'm not then i'm i'm just bunk and so my 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 fiance had does tell me oh my gosh fiance uh, she's she's not my girlfriend not my wife we are literally engaged so i i have to use the term um but uh, she said, you know, you need, you need an assistant to like, to make sure you actually get to meetings on time and you get to, you respond to all your emails, but it's, ah, oh, it feels so, I don't know, weird to think about that. Isn't it? It's, it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Yeah. And it, I feel like I'm going to, even if my career like hits that next pitch, you know, if it jumps up another notch, I feel like I'm still going to push back on it. Like it's going to just be such a weird thing. Mm. What is the next step? The next pitch, the next step up. I mean, I, I guess uh, I'm in a kind of a bizarre spot where I have made a very good living as an epic fantasy writer for a decade, mm -hmm. but I've never hit a bestseller list. I mean, if you don't count like the Amazon, whatever, you know, all that kind of little <laughs> fiddly things, I've I've never hit a bestseller list. <laughs> um, and so... I don't know. I, bestseller lists are one of those weird things where everybody knows they're kind of bullshit, but they're also... But everyone wants them anyway. <laughs> everybody wants them anyway, right? Because they yeah. still do... They mean vaguely that you're doing quite well, right? Yeah. And so... 
So I guess my next level is I, I, I'd love to hit a bestseller list with may, maybe my next series that's out in a couple months. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but but I, I, I like I don't really have anything to complain about because, you know, Powder Mage, I like I still most of my bills are paid by the uh, royalties on books I haven't written for several years now, which is awesome. Mm. And I'm in a very fortunate position with that. Uh, but uh, I guess, yeah, I guess that's my next step. I mean, how about for somebody like you? What What is the next step for, because, you know, we've talked about your passion with writing, mm-hmm. but that's slightly different than what you do with YouTube. And so I guess that's two different questions. One question is your next step as a writer. And the other question is your next step as a YouTuber. It's complicated and deeply intertwined. So I was having a talk with a friend the other day on the weekend about basically those two questions where I'm going. And when I first started out, you know, you've, you've got, I've got 500 subscribers. I've got to turn this into something now. Great. Turns it into 2000. Awesome. 2000 is great. Let's turn it into 10,000. Let's turn it into a hundred thousand and a hundred thousand. You're at the point now, usually where you've got a sustained audience. You can, you can get 10,000 subscribers and not, and like have no, like no follow through into the future. Um, hundred thousand, you're usually building something a bit more to be clear, by the way, subscribers are the worst way to, uh, actually measure a channel for a bunch of algorithmic reasons. It's complicated, but, um, so I was kind of always thinking about how do I develop the channel a lot more and make it sustainable. All right. So I'm making it sustainable by always catering to the audience that I've got, trying to evolve it, make it longer lasting, make it broader, but fundamentally looking at what they want and providing that. And I really fell into my stride when I had writing and world building content that really opened up what my audience was and, and, and found like, Oh, this is now I'm doing something that matters to me personally. And eventually you get to the point where you're kind of like, all right, what, how flexible can I be? How much do I have to upload? How much do I have to cater to what they want or will they stick around for me? How sustainable is that? And I've, I've been at that sort of experimental point where I can take a step back, not worry that much about constant uploads. You know, I started off doing three videos a week, fell down to two, fell down to one, now one every two weeks, now one every two to three weeks. You know, it it it, it, it drops away in that sense. And so the next level is really, can I use this to do anything I want with the channel in many senses? And I, to be clear, I love doing writing and world building content. So that's definitely going to continue. But like, Avatar The Last Airbender content has been a huge part of my channel, but I have considered kind of moving that to a second channel, toning that down in some way for a bunch of complicated reasons. But um, yeah, so the next level YouTuber would be try and make it so that I could, I can release short stories on the YouTube channel. Theoretically, that'd be really cool. Um, And as a writer, I started writing short stories as uh, about September last year and I wanted to get those published because I was kind of like, mm-hmm. I want to have some publications under my belt in some way. And I, and I have, I've got two now and I hopefully have a third soon. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I'm stoked with how it's going. <laughs> I I've had so many, so many closes, but like there's, I, I cannot tell you how many times I have had emails being like putting you through to the final round. And then it's no, <laughs> then it's still rejected. But um, yeah, that's, that's a way to, to develop that writing side. 
and I want to kind of use the meld it closer with my YouTube channel um, mm-hmm. and finish the sci-fi novel, get that on submission and get that published. Uh, and theoretically I've been talking with a bunch of other people. Maybe we might be doing an anthology of short stories released Kickstarter style. We'll see. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, and it's, you know, you mentioned this a bit earlier, um, kind of that the way that anything that you do, um, and you were saying this in, in terms of, you know, like self-publishing and stuff like that, mm. but anything you do is going to, by nature of what you do for a living, connect back to your part as a public figure with a lot of followers, right? Yes. And so um, that's... That's I find that kind of thing really fascinating. I talked with uh, Daniel Green on this mm-hmm. podcast about the same thing of you know whether you want to or not, if you end up doing anything else creatively outside of your YouTube channel, it's going to come back to the YouTube channel and it's going to be involved. I am always cultivating public image whether I want to or not. Yeah. Um absolutely. And uh, it's it it's it's a weird world to exist in where everything you do, I guess, is part of generating that. Because uh, I mean, in some sense, you get to sort of take a step back for a year or two and then appear back on the scene, you know? Right. Which is, you know, it's it's a weird place because I I, I have this theory about about the way that authors kind of remain or don't remain in the public consciousness mm-hmm. and. I actually quite dislike having to not be in the public consciousness for most of my work time, you know, most of my work year, because I feel like when there's so much, so many good books coming out, so many new authors coming up and everything like that, you almost, you're kind of competing with everybody, not in an aggressive sort of horrible way. But just you're competing for every with everyone else for for everybody's brain space. Yeah, and uh, and the more people remember your name, and we mentioned Brandon earlier. Mm -hmm. Brandon is so saturated in terms of you know he's now got his YouTube channel and he's always coming up on best lists and everything like that. Um, This this kind of saturation is really good for authors. Um, and I, I find it kind of funny because I think a lot of authors look at some of you YouTubers who who start off as YouTubers and then shift over to writing. Some of us would absolutely kill for that kind of built-in audience. I, I've been told that. I've been told that before. I've been told, you know, like, you have no idea yeah. how incredible it is that you have this platform that you do and i'm like i know i know i'm trying to exploit it i am doing my best (laughs) like i i I, (laughs) yeah yeah keep on piling the pressure on yeah i'm like i'm i'm writing short stories i'm getting them published i'm getting this sci-fi novel because i wrote i wrote i wrote a book and i've had it out with out on submission with agents for a while no real luck (laughs) and that's that's fine that is that is fine. I've got another uh, like I, st- I almost started writing short stories because I was like, "Am I just am I just shit at writing? Am I just bad?" And uh, and and I was and I was like, "No, no, 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 no." The first short story I wrote got nearly picked up by Clark's World. I cannot be that bad. I cannot be that bad. Yeah, I was really stoked at that first story. Sent it to Clark's World was like one of the biggest magazines in sci-fi out there at the moment, and I got through the final round and then rejected. But still, ego boost 
anyways, I wrote them and I was, and I was feeling always an ego boost. You always need an ego boost. And I was like, am I just bad? No, I can't be bad. I can't be bad. So I've, I'm tr- I've written, I'm, I'm like 60,000 words, 70,000, 60,000, 70,000 words into a sci-fi novel, which I'm going to finish. And then I'm going to get down on submission. And my aim is to have that out with agents by the end of the year as like, just gotta, I have to exploit this audience now or I'm going to lose it all, which is just, I know it's the terror of it all going to fall apart and I know it's not going to fall apart, but it feels like it will. <laughs> right. But yeah, and it, it's hard because, because when you're, when you do these things professionally, as, because you, you're, you are not, you don't have a novel out, but you have been writing for your YouTube channel for years and yes. you, you have experience. You know how businesses work. You know how these things, the ebb and flow of these things, right? Yeah. And this, it is true that you kind of have to take advantage of any time you are in the public spotlight to continue to keep yourself in the public spotlight. Why don't you just cause some drama, you know? Cause some drama and then just be like, and by the way... <laughs> Patamage. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Do something, say something absolutely horrible, but then like it. Yeah, and then use it to promote. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like, that sounds so stressful because there are people who do that. And it just sounds like, oh, uh, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Who does that? No, you don't need to name anyone. I just, <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're out there. I'm, I'm thinking more of like political pundits who have oh, like yeah. new crappy tell-all books out and stuff like that. Oh, they do. They, they totally do. You know, the truth behind the, oh goodness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird world almost constantly being in the public eye uh, in some, in some senses. Like I know, I know Daniel, you know, when he was putting out his books, like, it, it it's complicated because it's 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 hard to experiment with yourself in the public eye or experiment with your writing because everything is met with such high critique and i know that he struggled with that a little bit um and and that's totally understandable uh that you but, but you can't really retreat from the public eye in a lot of that a lot of the time yeah well and it's especially for guys like you because you 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 guys with the youtube and everything it's you're in the public eye all the time. Like we mentioned, you're putting out content on a very regular basis. You know, if a, if a writer put uh, like, if a novelist who otherwise isn't really around, Mm. if they put out a different book than what they normally get, yeah, they'll get some emails, they'll get some complaints, but otherwise, you know, people kind of pass it by, you know, unless they're, unless they're one of the massive writers. Right. Um, but otherwise people just kind of pass it by and it's fine. It's not a big deal, but for guys like you that are putting out constant content, uh, content, there, there are all these built-in expectations. There's all this public, there's that, um, there's, there's all that, uh, you know, like reader, reader audience feedback, right? That's, that's not just constant, but immediate, you know, like you guys, you can post a, you can post a video and I imagine that within the amount of time it takes for that video to post and then be watched a single time, you've got comments already. Oh yeah. Yeah. 100%. There are people who, who comment before watching as a, as a way of like, of like asserting themselves on the comment section. (laughs) It is like that. Um, and it's, it's all compounded by constantly measuring yourself numerically, um, you know, by views and, 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 and whatsoever. And, Part of my growth over the last while has been trying to shift away from kind of constantly measuring myself and views. And it's YouTube measures, YouTube measures your, your videos against one another, your last 10 videos. 
Yeah. So you'll be told when you put out a video, whether it's number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number 19. And that's at the relative time of it being posted. So they're always, they're like, at this point, your other videos were doing this well. And sometimes that's nice because you get a one out of 10 or a two out of 10 or a three out of 10. But like in my brain, if I'm getting a four out of 10, it, it feels like I've failed, you know. But of course, something has to be the four out of 10, you know, <laughs> like they can't all be one, twos and threes. Uh, and so that, that that's it. When you're when you're constantly kind of measuring yourself against the algorithm. Yeah, it, it can stifle your creativity sometimes because you're trying to to constantly grab as much of the audience as possible. And you're looking at, oh, what do I have to create right now to get that one out of 10? And that's not necessarily coinciding with your passions. So I was going to ask, like, does that ever enter your writing at all? Like you write to appease the trends, appease the people in a way that you know that some projects won't hit others as uh, won't hit the algorithm as well? Oh, I mean, it's different in terms of what I'm trying to appease, but yes, very much so. Um, you know, because, because saying I don't want to, I don't want to be a slave to the algorithm or I don't want to be a slave to, for me, it would be to my epic fantasy fans. Yeah. You know, like saying that is way easier than actually doing it because delivering to those, to those fans, to those watchers, to, to the audience that is used to a certain type of content yeah, that's what pays your mortgage or your rent or your car payment, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so it's really easy to say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to write something super weird. You know, I'm going to take a left-hand turn into something different. And that's, you can say that, but you also might have a book totally bomb, or in your case, a video totally bomb. Yeah. You know? Uh, But honestly, it's also the writing, because I'm, so (laughs) people... Believe it or not, because of the content I make, think I'm writing a giant, epic, world-built fantasy. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Now, the weird thing is, I love studying those types of books. I'm not actually really that big on writing them. I like writing small casts, narrow like visions, personal stakes, uh where the magic or the science is usually the background, Mm -hmm. you know, Annihilation hit me so well because it's such a deeply personal book. You know, I am someone who loves John Green's novels, right? I like YA fiction because it's often so psychological in terms of like how deeply you get into, to, I, I, I read a lot about mental illness and self-harm and suicide and stuff like that. Cause I have a lot to do with that in, I, I volunteer at a helpline. I was going to say I have a lot to do with that personally, but that would have come off wrong. Um, yeah, so I, I like write, I, I like writing those sorts of books, but everyone's going to be expecting me to come out with, you know, a Powder Mage style story. Yeah, big, deep world building, the kind of stuff that you have taught on your channel and in your books. Yes, absolutely. And so they're going to read and they're going to be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what the, what are you giving us here? What are you going? What's these characters? You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm a little bit worried about that. And then the science fiction novel that I've got, it, even though like it does have a multi consciousness, multi consciousness, multi dimensional alien coursing across the stars to come for Earth. It's got a probe landing on the planet. It's still fundamentally 
about a young mother who just lost her child and isn't able to recover from that. Like that's the story. Yeah. It's so I, I like those sorts of stories and I, I am worried about how it's going to be received when I, you know, release, release the book. Well, and it's, it's funny because you will immediately get comments from people saying, why didn't you think of the fans? And the fact <laughs> is, is that you will have thought about it constantly. Yeah. Yeah. You you know ahead of time what everybody's complaints are going to be and sometimes you ha- you want to do something different regardless of what you can foresee with your existing audience. Yeah. No, that's that's that's, uh, that's that's absolutely true. I don't know. We'll see how it turns out. <laughs> it's all right. You you just you have to just remember that every single author out there has those same paranoias and same worries and you know, sometimes they end up justified and sometimes they don't. And you'll always have gotten something out there and you'll have tried it. And that's, I guess, at the end of the day, you know, especially when you have a very successful other career to fall back on. Mm. Very, you know, it's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I always remind myself, despite the unique challenges that I face in my job, I do live in the most fortunate life that I could live in basically, you know, um, not only do I live in New Zealand, which it's, I know no one else thinks about New Zealand, but I am so fortunate to have grown up here. Um, but I think New Zealand, everything I've seen of New Zealand is so stinking gorgeous. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a beautiful, amazing country and I, I love it very much. Um, but I mean, obvi- yeah, but obviously also I fell into this job, um, and, and I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have done so. People say, you know, you work really hard, Tim, you know, you work this many hours, this many days a week. You know, there was a time when there was years where I worked like, you know, 9am till nine at night uh, at university while also studying. And I have since drawn that back a lot. I, I have really good, reasonable hours now, but people go, you know, you worked so hard, but people don't realize how much luck I've had as well. Um, how much out of that, out of control this was for me. Yeah, I tried, but I also lucked into it. And I I try not to forget that. The, there is always an element of luck with creative businesses, you know, because uh I because you have to the stars have to align, right? You have to have mm. you have to have the right reviews, you have to have for the right algorithms, you have to have the right things happen at the right time to get people to even notice you exist let alone to then become a success. Yeah. I mean, so much of it, even in book publishing is the right story at the right time. Oh yeah. You know, you, you could, there are books coming out now, which have published in 2005 would have not, not, not have heard a blink, you know, and there are books that came out in 2005 that if they came out now, might be massive sellers, but aren't, it's just the nature of the industry, you know, like hard magic systems, you know, and I guess sort of in the, in the wake of that Sanderson explosion, became really big fast uh, sellers in the same way that, you know, in the wake of Tolkien, you had all of those high fantasy stories. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, for personally, it was, uh, you know, powder mage came out just a couple of months before, uh, Django Wexler's, uh, thousand names. And so I, I oh. barely beat Django for being <laughs> the guy at the very front of the, of the, um, the flintlock fantasy trend yeah and and so like that was just pure luck and and Django's books are amazing 
and he gets brought up all the time with the same subgenre, but I still feel like I'd like just barely squeaked in there to have that to whenever Flintlock fantasy is mentioned, I'm probably mentioned as well. And it's like, Oh, that's quite cool, but it's totally luck. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, you could have lost that two months on a publishing, like, you know, deadline basically rather than anything else necessarily. Exactly. I don't know what the gap is between you finishing a book and it actually getting published, but uh, yeah, like, I mean, it's sometimes it's quite a long while. Yeah. It's like a year. Like it's, it's a long time. A year. Is it a year? It's, it's, I think to publishers, the ideal is a year, but it can be as short as like six months, but it's, I think they prefer to have a longer lead time. Mm. You know, of course, if like, if George R. R. Martin turns in a new book tomorrow, it'll be out in three months, right? But sorry, George R. R. Martin turning in a book. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, not familiar with that phrase. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it it's not happen very often. I read, I, I read. So, I, I watched the first two seasons of Game of Thrones, and my friends like Tim, you need to read the books. And I'm like, the series is already really good, and he's like, yeah, but the books are so much better. And I read all of them like really quickly. Um. And I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I was, oh, was going to say something. Um, oh, okay. So on the topic of like YouTuber books and stuff like that, are you familiar with Lindsay Ellis at all? Um, my wife has watched a lot of her stuff. I have not. I'm familiar with the person, right? Like I don't, I know of her, but I don't, I don't know the stuff. Okay. All right. So it's not that interesting a story in which case, if you don't know, but she brought out a science fiction book, which did actually strike the, the, the New York times bestseller um, list. Mm -hmm. And um, I've, I've read the book. It's, it's, it's good. Um, But I think in this, in the same way that, you know, the, the, the irony is that people look at kind of YouTubers and be like, well, you only hit the bestseller list because you have a big audience who's going to propel that to it. And there's an element of truth to that, you know, like we can mobilize audiences a lot easier than other people. Um, but uh, yeah, Lindsay Ellis did bring out a sci-fi book and, is, and, is, and, and, and people have definitely looked down on her for sort of hijacking the publishing industry. Um, not that that's legitimate. Yeah. And it's, and it's complicated. Even, like I imagine from your end, like we've been talking about is that it's that complicated because you, you don't want to be seen to be that person, right? No. But you also absolutely know that for the good of your career, you should be that person. <laughs> That's honestly, that has been why I wanted to like publish short stories. I was kind of like, I don't want to be seen as someone who just gets published because of my audience. Yeah. Um, and the record, I've had a book out with agents for the last while and I've got an nothing despite <laughs> the fact that i put in there you know i have a nearly million fold audience here <laughs> so <laughs> i mean it, it does it does not always pay off absolutely and it's yeah but it's and it's hard to try to kind of to sort through those waters right mm. to 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 sort out you know what what's good for you personally versus professionally yeah and i think a lot of people a lot of audience people that don't do this for a living they don't really understand all of the complicated feelings that go into that kind of thing. Yeah. People just don't know how these jobs work. You know, every single time someone asks me, Oh, you're a YouTuber. Although technically they ask, what do you do for a job? And I say, I'm an online, um, I'm an, on I create educational online content. Uh, cause if I say, if I say I'm a YouTuber, there's two options. Number one, they think I'm Jake Paul. 
or number two, they they think I you know live in a basement and have no money and have no prospects. That that is exactly the response that you get when you say <laughs> epic fantasy and author. Is it really? Yeah, it is. It's either either they think that you're George R. R. Martin or that you live in your mom's basement, and it's and it's like and he's like, no, no, I. I have a nice house and I make a, a decent living and I have, I know, but you don't want to be that person who goes like, oh, trust me, I make money, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I have a house. I, as I smoke my Cuban cigar, I like, <laughs> right. And, and it's like, I think people don't really get this idea that there's this happy middle ground between being, yeah. you know, a multimillionaire creator versus being, no, you know, troglodyte. It, it, but it, it's that's so weird to me because in my brain, author is such a respected profession. Like if someone said I'm an author, I'm like awesome, you know. Like, and I know I know tons of people who are still authors but don't make that much money, you know. And this, it's still to me. I look at them and I go, "You're pursuing your your passion. That's that's cool, you know." Uh, Among authors, <laughs> authors are not respectable people. <laughs> oh, what? We all look at each other like, uh you again, huh? <laughs> my my competition, my my rival. Uh, <laughs> like uh, I, it's it it's a weird world to be in. But yes, people assume people assume that that I I either you know go and go to the suicide forest in Japan, or I uh, or I or I don't have any prospects whatsoever. Right. Um, so I have to sort of start off with that, and then my friends will usually be like, "No, no, he does, he does this." <sighs> we'll see how it happens when I guess I'm an author, you know, like, and then, and then you can feel what it's like to not actually be respectable. Like you'd hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I work all my life just to be called an author and it's just the same. <laughs> I have bad news for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, epic fantasy, or I would not look down on epic fantasy author at all. I think it's cool. I think it's great. Hey, you know what? I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Can I put that on my tombstone? <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's cool. Tim Hickson, 2022. There you go. Yes. All right. Oh. You know what? I'll, I'll take that. Um, I'm going to take that. That's fantastic. Well, hey, man, I have been keeping you for quite a long time, but I like to wrap these conversations up by mm-hmm. asking, um, what's the last thing that you ate that you loved that blew your mind? The last thing that I ate that blew my mind. Um, that I loved or that blew my mind? Because those are two different things. You know what? Either one. Okay. I made a homemade pizza on the weekend and I, I have very cheap tastes, but I made the dough and then we just and then then we just put tomatoes and cheese and I bought this chorizo from the supermarket. And that to me was just stellar. And then the the most recent thing that blew my mind is a sugary treat that my friend made called crack. Which <laughs> Sugary treat, huh? No, <laughs> no. So what it is, what it is, is uh, it's basically a layer of caramelized sugar at the bottom. And then I don't know what you call them. We would call them like water crackers. They're like really bland. They're the blandest cracker you can imagine. Sometimes they're a bit salted and they've got a little hole. Yeah, well, it's sort of like a saltine. Salt. Is that a over, I think over here it would be a saltine. Yeah, yes, it's a saltine. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So okay. it's, it's literally just caramelized 
sugar, like with caramel, caramel flavor, saltine crackers, and then chocolate on the top. And it is the worst thing for you, but it had the most amazing taste. I, I did not expect it to be as good as it was. There we go. That that sounds like a homemade candy bar. Like it basically was. Yeah. And oh, you that, just, that, just breaks it up into shards. I'm, I'm game for that. That sounds great. Yeah. What about yourself? Do you give your answer or is it just, just me? <laughs> yeah, but if I gave my answer, then it would be the same thing every single episode. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I Actually, I will tell you that um, I've started, I've got two nieces that are in college nearby where I live. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, last summer, uh, as soon as COVID restric- restrictions started lightening up, uh, started doing family dinner uh, every oh, yeah. month. And, uh, and I do a lot of uh, smoked meats and things like that. Um, and so I made ribs. I made smoked ribs last night for my nieces. Oh, smoked ribs. That's and good. they came out so good. Yeah. No, that's that. I'm, I'm jealous. Ribs are like peak. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I, I love I love smoked meats too much. I'm like, I keep telling myself, OK, back off on all the meat. Try to eat a little healthier. <laughs> trying to replace more of the dark meat with chicken, you know, stuff like that. But uh, but I still I. I love eating too much. That's, uh, I mean, hey, it's, uh, it's all a weakness we uh, all have. I recently gained a bit of weight and I'm like, oh, no, I need to eat a bit better. That's <laughs> <sighs> how it always goes. Yeah. That was YouTuber Tim Hickson. Thanks again to Tim for taking the time to chat. You can find links to Tim's YouTube channel and world building books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books directly from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Jennifer and Angela Johnson, and Ivor Gullickson for their backing on Patreon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.